This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. When someone goes missing, the first thing we do is look for a reason. Have they made plans? Gone on a trip? Visited friends? Is there a simple explanation as to where they could be? Then we might consider whether they could be a victim of crime. Are there signs of a break-in? Any suspicious activity? You get the idea. If that's not the answer, we look at the missing person. Is there anything to suggest they were unhappy, unwell, dealing with anything that might explain their disappearance? But when the obvious routes are exhausted, when every theory provokes more questions than answers, what do you do then? In this episode, we examine the baffling case of Fatima Muhammad Ali, a woman who disappeared for no apparent reason and left behind no trail, no suspects and no explanation. I have followed many high-profile cases over the years thinking it's never going to happen to us. And uh, it does happen to all of us. I'm Pandora Sykes and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series brought to you with support from the charity Missing People and investigation specialists Locate International. This is The Missing. Fatima Muhammad Ali. How much do we really know about our nearest and dearest? How much do our loved ones know about us? It's a question that probably doesn't raise its head until that moment when it's challenged, when something we don't expect occurs and we're tasked with trying to explain it. Mohammed Mohammed Ali has been trying to find answers for five years, ever since his wife, Fatima, disappeared on February the 12th, 2016. Mohammed and Fatima lived in New Haven, on the south coast of England, a pretty seaside town sandwiched between Eastbourne and Brighton. It was a far cry from their native Tanzania, but the couple had spent decades in England. 
and like many married couples, they had a morning routine. It was like a normal every day. She woke up. She normally been Friday, you know, she always does her prayers. Uh, woke me up, told me to come down and have my breakfast. And on that day, I decided to do it early because two, three days before, I ordered her a gift, you know, for Valentine's Day. So I thought I'll go to the post office early to pick it up, you know. It was a tradition for the family to make a big deal of Valentine's Day. Mohammed had ordered a gift from Dubai that had now arrived. He needed to go and collect it, and he wanted to pick up a box of chocolates while he was at it. Every Valentine's Day, since my boy was... 12, 13, we used to always give her a box of chocolate because she never liked flowers. Because not that she doesn't like flowers, she was saying, you know, why don't you give me chocolate? So at least I can eat. So me and my son always used to take her out for a meal and give her a box of chocolate, you know. Sometimes the most extraordinary of days can be the most routine ones too. I said to her goodbye and I said, do you want anything? And she said, no, you know, I'll do the shopping tomorrow. I said, you sure you don't want any milk or bread? She said no, and that was my last word, and she said goodbye, and that was the last word from what I heard from her. I probably was outside warming up my car for about two, three minutes, and then I left. I went to post office, picked the parcel up that I ordered for her from Dubai. It was 7.48, and then I just left to work, you know. The day continued as normal, and at 1pm, Mohammed left work, the end of his working week. And as Fatima didn't work on Fridays, it was essentially the start of the weekend for them both. Mohammed was in good spirits as he drove home. As I entered the home, all the, you know, there was no noise or nothing. Usually she'd be in the kitchen cooking or something, you know. Or there'd be some TV playing or, you know, music playing because been married for nearly 38 years at that time, you know, you know, there was no smell of cooking in the house, you know, no cluttering sound of the, in the kitchen or any, anything, you know. And I thought maybe she's upstairs. You know, I just went in and started shouting her, her name, Fatima, 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 no answer. So I went upstairs, you know, she wasn't upstairs. So I came down and then I noticed the car keys, her wallet, her purse, everything in the lounge table. But normally she would never go anywhere without the car. The moment you realise something is wrong can stay with you forever. Time slows down. Panic seeps in. For Mohammed, it was gut instinct that told him to call for help. I called her mobile and I couldn't get an answer from the mobile. And the first thing I said was, let me call my daughter. So I called my eldest daughter. And she says to me, Dad, don't worry. She might have gone down the village barber shop, you know, the salon, you know. So I said, look, I'm going to go out there because they will know me and they know Fatima quite well. So I went there and asked somebody at the salon, say, has Fatima been around? And she said, no, not today. So I walked back up to the house, went back in there, and I called my daughter again. And I said, something's not right. My daughter said, call her again. And when I called her the second time, I could hear the ringing sound upstairs in the bedroom. 
So I went upstairs and I saw a phone. And I thought, that is definitely something wrong here now. The car keys, purse and mobile phone were all at home, but there was no sign of Fatima. Perhaps she popped out to get some air, gone to help a neighbour. There were countless possibilities, but the explanations came and went as time passed by, and Fatima still didn't return. If she'd gone to run a quick errand, she would have been back within minutes. Normally Friday she never goes out, I know that. And if she does goes out, she'll go out with me when I get home. That's definitely. Second thing, if she goes out, she'll take her car. Even if she went out for a one-minute ride or two-minute ride, ride down the shop to get some bread or milk, she'll go by car. And those are the two things that start making me worrying too much. By mid-afternoon, Mohammed made the call he dreaded. I called the police straight away. I started panicking, started crying, thinking, you know, the negative thoughts always go into your head first. Thinking, has somebody come in the house and done something to her? The first police, two policemen arrived within about five minutes. They ran around the house and then they told me to sit down and uh, then one of them went away. And then the next thing I know, another four police turns up. That's when my, I, I started really, really panicking and getting scared because I was told to sit down. They took my phone away. Uh, I, I was not allowed to answer anything or I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. Took my car keys, her car keys. And I, I, knew, I knew something's not right, something's not right. It's a sad fact that on many cases of a missing woman, the person responsible is their partner. And so one of the first things that officers will do is to take a statement, check the partner's story, and make sure they're not keeping any secrets. And while Mohammed knew he had nothing to hide, it didn't make the experience any easier to cope with. You feel hopeless, well, hopeless and helpless because it's a police matter and I was told not to go anywhere, you know. If, even when I went to the kitchen to get a water, one of the women police had followed me. They were looking around the house and went in the attic, in the garden, in the shed. When the other two detectives, when they turned up after a couple of hours, that's when I knew I was scared. I knew I was absolutely scared, thinking, am I going to be accused of something that I haven't done? Or are they going to suspect me that I've done something? The police undoubtedly checked Mohammed's movements and made sure that he was telling the truth. From there, the police investigation rippled outwards. This was a case that quickly jumped up their priorities. Fatima had never gone missing before. To aid the investigation, they wanted to know more about their missing person. It was down to Mohammed to give them a sense of who Fatima was, what was going on with her life, and whether there could be any clues as to where she'd gone. And that meant telling the police everything he knew from the very beginning. She was a very attractive, beautiful young girl, you know, very quiet, 
very reserved, you know, uh, very respectful. Mohammed and Fatima met in Tanzania, and love was not initially on the cards. I knew Fatima when she was a young girl, you know, but, you know, in our early days of going to school, primary school, secondary school. So I knew her, you know, but uh, never thought of one day I'll marry her. In 1975, they lost contact when Mohammed moved to the UK to study. It wasn't until seven years later, on a trip back home, that the stars would align for them. Mohammed's parents wanted to introduce him to someone. My mum said to me, you need to settle down now, you know, you're my last baby son. My mum used to go to mosque and she used to see all these girls coming to do their prayers, you know. And it's sort of like a tradition over there that, you know, the mothers always keep an eye for the sons, you know, for the future daughter-in-law. You know what I mean? Like the old traditional way. And then I was like, no, 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 no. And my dad sort of said, look, before you go back to London, just have a look at this girl that we think is be nice for you, you know. And after a lot of arguments, you know, I thought, well, all right, you know, if I have to see to please my parents, I will. And uh, behold, my luck, the house I went, it was Fatima's house. The pair moved to the UK and settled on the south coast. It was tough for Fatima. She Initially, she didn't like it here, but she wanted to go back to Africa. And I said, probably she's just homesick, you know, like she was only 18 years of age, you know. And slowly, you know, as luck happens, you know, she became pregnant with my first child. And then I think so, life started a beautiful time for us for the last 40 years, you know. My brother and my sister-in-law were living in Brighton. I was in Hove initially. So she had a good family support, you know, and my, my mother used to come and visit us quite regularly to make sure that she settled down okay. She settled well, she was well respected in the village I was living in because we were the only sort of Asians in the village, you know, and everybody loved us, you know, and uh, people used to just admire her because she always used to walk out with her traditional dress and she looked so beautiful all the time. Colourful dresses, you know. Uh, always walking with the children, taking them to school in the village, bringing them home. And she, had a, she, she we, we had an absolutely fantastic, you know, neighborhood, you know. She loved entertaining people and uh, she loved entertaining guests or, you know, relatives or friends of children or whatever. She was a great cook, you know, absolutely great cook. She, she could cook, you know, English, Italian, African, Indian dish, and nobody could touch her. I can swear by God. The couple eventually had three children, a house full of noise and all the dramas and pressures that children can bring. But then, of course, those children grew up and left to start families of their own. Mohammed remembers when his youngest daughter got married and moved away. The amount of tears she shed on the last day that the, the bride left the home, you know, it's, I think, so probably traditional the way, you know, mother has to let a daughter go, you know, not knowing what the future holds for her, you know. It brought sadness to both of us, tears and everything, you know. 
but he insists that those tears were just the normal reactions of a well-grounded, strong woman, rather than any indication that Fatima was fragile. Fatima was a very strong person, you know. I remember if, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be where I am now. She was a very tough lady, you know, a very tough, very polite, loving lady, you know. All the ups and downs I came across, uh, she had the answer for me. Considering, you know, she's only five foot two, I mean, she was a gutsy lady. And there was nothing in recent weeks or months that suggested Fatima would have any reason to disappear. And yet that's exactly what had happened. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The investigation followed two parts. The first saw detectives looking into any possible lead they could find. Was Fatima having an affair? Were there money problems? They examined the scene to make sure Fatima wasn't concealed at the property, and they checked if there were any suggestions of an intruder or an abduction. Tests did in fact reveal the DNA of one unknown man at the property. It wasn't Mohammed, and it wasn't any of the officers on the scene but it didn't match any known offenders either. And while detectives were probing this and other possible leads, uniformed officers and local volunteers began a coordinated search. I could hear from their radios that a lot of the police were searching Brighton, Eastbourne, Newhaven, Worthing, all these areas, you know, the seafront, the beach, the beach area, because we don't live far from the beach. So they had this suspicion that has she gone and jumped in the water or what? So they were doing everything at night. But I think so early morning, I heard a lot of helicopter around my area, you know. And I saw about uh, probably about 50, 60 people all dressed up in police gears searching the wooded area near my home. It was reassuring in one way that they're looking for Fatima, 
but also I was scared that what they're gonna find in case they do find something. Sussex police did what they could. There was no delay in getting units onto the search. When cases are reviewed, there's sometimes concern that more could have been done at the time, that opportunities in the first few hours weren't taken. But here, within 24 hours of Fatima going missing, the police were coordinating a thorough search. I had a lot of my neighbours turned up on the following afternoon. Uh, a lot of them did come to say that they are going out there to search themselves as well. Uh, the next day, me, my son, my brother, my son-in-law, my daughter, we ran everywhere we could that the police allowed us to go, you know. Uh, looking at all the areas we thought Fatima would be, you know. The police had a range of tools, from thermal imaging cameras on a helicopter, which could scour large remote areas for any sign of life. Dogs that could track a scent and recover humans over large distances and specialist teams adept at searching on difficult terrain. If Fatima had taken a walk and fallen ill, or suffered an injury, a quick and detailed search ought to find her before it's too late. Another tool used by the police in many missing persons inquiries is the media. Local radio stations, TV news bulletins and newspapers are all contacted to try and spread the word and increase the chances of a witness coming forward. But despite having all of these resources, the breakthrough wouldn't come that first night, or the next. It was three days after Fatima left the house that police found their first clue. On, on the third day, one of the detectives came home you know, and said, we have found a CCTV from a house on the main road, but the CCTV image was only for a few seconds. And when she brought the video, we just saw Fatima walking past that road. That was it. And that, that, that is it. Just one fleeting image of Fatima. But the police had no doubt it was her. The image was captured about 15 minutes' walk from her home, a camera fitted to the front of a house which Fatima was walking past. There was nothing in those few frames of footage that could answer the question of where Fatima was now. But even this tiny amount of CCTV provided a wealth of clues. First, the time of day. Fatima had last been seen at 7.30am when Mohammed left the house. And she'd gone missing sometime before 1.30pm when Mohammed got home. Now the footage from that camera could tighten the window of time. It was 7.58am in the morning. 7.58, less than half an hour after she waved Mohammed out of the house, Fatima was walking on the streets. As soon as I left, she probably decided to leave the home. For what reason, we don't know. Because they worked it out. From my home, to get to that CCTV, it would have taken a normal person walking between 12 to 15 minutes. And she was clocked at 7.58 a.m. So she must have left about five, six, eight, ten minutes after I left. She showed nothing, no sign of anything, no sign of stress, mental issues or whatever. Nothing, no upsetness, no tears, nothing. The next clue the CCTV offered were the clothes that Fatima was wearing. She had on a pair of black boots, a beige coat 
and what Mohammed imagined was a sari underneath. When I actually left her, she was still in a nightgown in the morning. Even now, sometimes I talk too much and I figure out every second of the thing that how would she have dressed up so quickly and so on, you know? Was there something in, something that I didn't click? Was there something I did not notice? I don't know. The third clue was that the CCTV showed that Fatima was alone. She wasn't walking under duress. There wasn't a shadowy figure by her side that police could investigate. So one fleeting CCTV image, undoubtedly Fatima, was all that Mohammed and the police had. If you want to take a look at this footage, we've posted it on our website, themissingpodcast.org. And while the footage showed Fatima walking along the street, it didn't narrow down where she might be going. Three ways you could go. You could go straight and you, you can go to an area called Denton Corner, and from there you can go to Eastbourne, or from there you can go to Brighton, and if you walk straight along, you're into the sea. Left or right, heading to the seaside towns, if that was the destination, then surely Fatima would have taken her purse and mobile phone. Otherwise, she'd be walking straight on into the sea. And it is that possibility that Mohammed fears the most. Has she gone to the sea? Has she gone and jumped off the cliff? I don't know. That was scary. But for all sorts of reasons, it just doesn't fit the woman that Mohammed spent his life with. Being the way she was so f- faithful to the religion, she, she knows and she knew and she also taught us it is against all religion to take your own life. There have been a handful of cases where people have gone into the sea at New Haven and their bodies have not immediately washed ashore. Both the direction of the tide and the weather conditions can drastically alter the likely outcomes. The most likely expectation, if Fatima had gone into the sea, is that her body would have been recovered on the shore. But without physical proof, Mohammed refuses to accept that Fatima's fate lay in the water. A year went by and there was still no news, and it was taking its toll on Mohammed. The first few days, few weeks, few months, maybe I would say up to, up to uh, almost for two years, I never left home. I never went to work. I lost almost four stone, five stone. I remember police coming to my home, visiting me telling me to eat and look after myself. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, that one day there'll be a knock. Either I'll have a good news or I'll have a bad news. But the police have said to me, that prepare yourself. In a way, I think so for the sake of, how do you put it, uh, so that you know, you got closure. Yes, if that's what it is, then I'll have to accept it. But then, out of the blue, there was a knock on the door. Police had been contacted by a new witness, a witness who had once worked with Fatima and who believed they saw her running for a bus in Brighton, the neighbouring town, some 18 months after she disappeared. Police gathered CCTV around the sighting, 
and there was an image of a woman matching the description. Could it be that Fatima was just a few miles away all this time? The police actually showed me. It's not very conclusive. It's not very, very clear. But we've looked time and time and time again. There are certain features that I think looks like her. But the police are saying that they've done extensive you know, imagery and they've sent it to a lab and it's inconclusive. That means that police cannot confirm that it's Fatima, but they can't rule it out either. We've put the image on our website, themissingpodcast.org, for you to see yourself. So it's probably me thinking it is her, because I want to think it is her, because I know her walk, I know her shoulder, I know her head, but there's no picture of the face. So it could be anybody. It's a baffling development. On one hand, eyewitnesses can often be mistaken. The best intentions of someone trying to help. But at the same time, this was an eyewitness who knew Fatima. Could it be that Fatima is, in fact, alive? And if so, what questions does that raise for her husband, Mohammed? February will mark five years since Fatima vanished. The number of appeals has reduced. Fatima's case now rarely makes the press. Whether she is in Brighton and living a new life, or whether she came to harm, isn't known. What we do know is that Mohammed won't give up the search to find answers. Soon after Fatima disappeared, Mohammed sought help from the charity Missing People. They provide support for families, as well as a helpline for people who are missing, thinking about going missing, or seeking advice about searching for a loved one. There's Missing People Charity who do a wonderful work. I support them. I sponsor them. My family sponsors them. And they've been there with me and they've been there with for a lot of families. Mohammed says their support has been invaluable in helping him cope and in connecting him with other families experiencing the same thing. Having a network who know what challenges lay ahead has kept Mohammed going. Don't suffer alone. There's lots of organisation out there who can help us. At the end of the day, we want answers. Um, hopefully, we all can get together and help each other and not let any one family suffer on their own. Anybody can find themselves in the position Mohammed is in now. Having a family member go missing doesn't discriminate. I have followed many high-profile cases over the years. I remember Ben Needham, Madeleine McCain, Susie Lamplug, Many more, you know. You always follow and thinking it's never going to happen to us. And uh, it does happen to all of us. And it is very surprising the amount of people who go missing. I'm thankful that many of them are found quickly, but all should be found. And no one should be given up on the, on the, on the hope of finding their loved one. We must carry on, look out for each other, I urge every listener, everybody out there, if you're out and about, you see somebody sitting out there, look at them. It could be somebody's missing loved one, a mother or father waiting for that one call, and you can bring that one happiness to that family.
Mohammed has a message to anyone who might have information about Fatima. If you've seen Fatima, or if you know where Fatima is, or if even Fatima is listening, on the 12th of February 2016, we lost a good wife, a mother and a grandmother. And anybody out there, please help us. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, for more information about Fatima's case. From there, you'll be able to see the CCTV images released by the police. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases and explore any information that comes in. And you'll find more information about the charity Missing People who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.